And now, on with the show. My name is Derek M. Cook. The podcast is called Monster Kid Radio, and the song is Hearse Surfing from the Phantomatics. From their album, She Left Her Brain at the Drive-In, appearing in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, by permission of the Phantomatics. This is episode number nine, and I'd like to welcome you to this week's episodes of the podcast, where we celebrate the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. But there is no doubt this time around, this week's movie is a definite hands down classic we're going to be talking about the 1958 film the seventh voyage of sinbad this is the first of three weeks of ray harryhausen coverage here on monster kid radio and these episodes were recorded earlier this year before the great man passed and i decided to play these episodes before i found out that our friends over the b movie cast are actually doing their own tribute series to Ray Harryhausen as well. In fact, the episode of the B-Movie cast that just played this past Sunday features the same guy who's guest hosting on this week's Monster Kid Radio episodes, and that would be writer, author, designer, artist, game designer, Stephen D. Sullivan. Now, you can find out more about what he's up to over at his own website at stephendsullivan.com, and that's Stephen with a P-H. Go check that out. And back in May... He posted an article on his website. He called it The Children of Ray Harryhausen. And it is one of the most moving, touching tributes to the man's work that I've read online since Ray Harryhausen passed on. So I recommend you guys go check that out. I think the combination of what Stephen has to say in these episodes of Monster Kid Radio and then what he says over at his website, it makes it pretty clear the influence that the man had on, well, all of us really. I don't think any of us could claim to be monster kids if it wasn't for the work of Ray Harryhausen. We're going to get to that here in a second. First, I want to go over our contact information like we always do here at Monster Kid Radio. You can find us at monsterkidradio.net. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-479-5MKR. Now, I would like to do a feedback-specific episode at some point down the line here at Monster Kid Radio. But it's been brought up over on our Facebook page that, you know, it's still a new show. People haven't quite figured out the routine, the flow, and a lot of conversations that you would normally have with a podcast. You're actually seeing happen over in the Facebook group. So go look up Monster Kid Radio in Facebook. Join the group. Please like the page. And let me know what you think of the show or have a conversation with some of the other listeners over there. I do want to give a huge thanks to two people who have left reviews in the iTunes store. They're calling themselves Bobby's Monkey and Cinema Slave Joe. I really appreciate the feedback and the reviews in the iTunes store. Now, we can't even get an average rating in the iTunes store until we get what they're calling enough ratings. So I don't know what that means. I don't know what enough is, 5, 10, whatever it is. But if you do listen to the show through iTunes, if you wouldn't mind, please head on over there. Let us know what you think. Let everybody know what you think because the more reviews we get, the more listeners we get, the bigger the community gets. And I know we're a young show, but I feel so positive about the people that I have interacted with online about the show. I love what I'm doing here with Monster Kid Radio. I'm having a blast. I hope you guys are digging it too. We've also received a ton of support from various bands and musicians who have allowed us to use their music on our show. So I really appreciate 
all the musicians that have appeared on the show so far. And a big shout out this week to the Phantomatics. You're going to be hearing that song that I played at the beginning of the show, Her Surfing. You'll hear that in its entirety at the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. And then in the next episode that comes out in a couple of days, you'll hear another song from their album, She Left Her Brain at the Drive-In. If you want to hear their music for yourself, go to thephantomatics.bandcamp.com. That's Phantom as in Phantom of the Opera. Maddox. .bandcamp.com. You can find a link to them in the show notes of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. And we'll get to the rest of the episode right after this. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel. Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. From the land beyond beyond, from the world past hope and fear, I bid you, Stephen D. Sullivan, now appear. I obey the master of the lamb. <laughs> uh, welcome, Stephen D. Sullivan to Monster Kid Radio. How's it going, Steve? It's going really well. How's it going with you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And I'm eager to talk about a movie that is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse with you. We're going to be talking about The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958, full of Ray Harryhausen goodness. Oh, totally brimming with Ray Harryhausen goodness. Dynamation in color. That's right. This is the first Dynamation film, right? It is the, the first official Dynamation film, and uh, I was reading about that uh, actually this morning. I thought I'll, br- I'll brush up a little bit, since it, though this is my favorite film, you know, there's some facts you carry in your head and some you don't, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently they felt at the time that they needed a word to describe the animation, the stop-motion animation that Harryhausen was doing uh, that wasn't just animation, because when you said animation in the marketplace, people thought of Mickey Mouse. Right. So they came up with the idea of dynamation, which combined the word dyna, which was from something I think Charles Schneer had in his car. It was a dynaglide car or something with the animation. So it became dynamation. And this is the first one. Right. Which they claimed that process. Now, this wasn't necessarily the first Harryhausen film or even the first film featuring this stop motion technique. I mean, that goes all the way back to King Kong. Right. Willis O'Brien, right? Right. Yeah. Stop motion even goes back way before that with um, O'Brien doing The Lost World and other things and the the experimental films he did and other animators did back in the uh, 1910s and 1920s. Mm -hmm. And O'Brien influenced Harryhausen and and Harryhausen worked with him on a film? Yeah, he actually worked with uh, Willis O'Brien. Willis was the head technician and, and Ray was like his direct assistant and actually did, from what I understand, did most of the animation of Mighty Joe Young of Joe Young himself. And you can actually see that. Once you become familiar with Harryhausen's films, there's kind of character that puppets have and a way that they move and certain things that they do. And you can see some of that in 
Mighty Joe Young, you can see how that's different in a way from the way Kong moves, even though they're very similar characters. Excellent. Now, I do want to talk about the movie and talk about Harryhausen, but first, Stephen D. Sullivan, who are you? Who am I? <laughs> I am an artist and a, a game designer and comic book writer, and I have been working in professionally in the industry since 1980 when I joined the staff of TSR, which was TSR Games, TSR Hobbies at various points, but then just TSR, the creators of Dungeons & Dragons. So in 1980, I went to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin to work in the game design and development. I was in production, which was uh, the equivalent of editing, on the version of Dungeons & Dragons that became known as Moldvay Cook, as well as uh, Top Secret and Boot Hill and a lot of the other TSR role-playing games of the time. And knowing that you were involved in some early D&D uh, work, I can definitely see the appeal to a movie like the seventh voyage of Sinbad. I mean, you've got the skeletons, you've got the monsters, you've got all this stuff. Did any of that influence you as a game designer? Absolutely. This film, the seventh voyage of Sinbad is one of the key films in influencing my life. It's right up there with, if we're, I was to rattle off my top five, it would be Casablanca, King Kong, the seven samurai, seventh voyage of Sinbad and Metropolis in more or less that order. Wow. So this one's right up there for me. And it has seventh voyage has everything that I look for in a film. It has, you know, a lot of us who are writers and, and do these kind of brain work were, shall we say, not entirely healthy kids. So I was a, you know, a kid with asthma, a kid that wasn't very athletic, a kid that, uh, if I wanted to spend a lot of time outdoors, I would end up gasping and having allergy attacks and that kind of stuff, which got a little better as I got older. But a lot of my life was an interior life as a child. So that involved books and that involved uh, comics and that involved movies a lot. And, you know, I remember one of the first movies I saw was a James Bond movie back in 1963. It was um, from Russia with Love. And somehow, I don't know, movies just really hit it for me as a kid. And at the time, there were these wonderful Aurora monster models and I had those as a kid and then somewhere fairly early in the the late 60s or early 70s I got hooked in with Famous Monsters of Filmland and I started seeing films like this film The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad on television and then it was it was all over <laughs> That was my life. So, and I just recently rewatched this. I had seen it years ago, and you know, I mentioned at the top of this that it, it's not necessarily in my wheelhouse. I'm more of the monster, you know, horror, sci-fi kind of guy. This is more of a fantasy adventure type movie. I had seen it before years ago, and just kind of filed it away in my brain. Rewatched it again, actually, just this morning. Uh, before we started recording, cool. and I watched it on TV. So, I mean, my experience is, is on the screen. Have you ever seen this on the big screen? I have. I'm just old enough. I'm, I'm 53 now, and I'm just old enough that when I was a teenager was kind of the golden age of revival movie houses. Aha. Uh -huh. Boston area, and in Boston there was a, a movie in Cambridge that, that did revival movies, and I, I believe I saw it there, and I believe I saw it again. When I moved to the Midwest, came out to Lake Geneva, there was a, a movie theater that's still there called the Oriental in Milwaukee, and it's a glorious movie palace. Inside, it's got Buddhas, and it's got all these kind of Oriental trappings. It's still existent. And when we moved out here, it was showing a new double feature revival 
every day of the week. Wow. So you could go up there on Monday and see two or Kurosawa films. And then on Tuesday, you could go see two Harryhausen films. And on Wednesday, you could go see Bogart films. And they had like a three-month schedule that we would pin on our walls at TSR and circle these things that we would drive the hour up to Milwaukee to see. And I've seen Seventh Voyage on the big screen a couple of times because of that. Has it held up for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it still has. I watched it fairly recently on... um, as you know, there's a whole bunch of podcasts that we both love, and one of them is the B-Movie Cast. And at some point, we were doing a, a Yahoo group B-Movie Cast simul-watch. So within mm-hmm. the past six months, I watched it again on Blu-ray this time on on the screen and gone through it. And yeah, it totally holds up for me. In fact, I was saying to my wife last night, I was talking about this, that I wish there were more of these straight kind of fantasy sword and sorcery movies. Yeah that weren't just based on classic novels like the the hobbit and the lord of the rings and narnia things that are kind of original and unique to the movies and there just aren't that many there've never been that many and that's why a lot of us became fans of harry housen because you knew if you went to see a ray harry housen movie you were going to see something you'd never seen before right now sinbad though is a classic character from you know folklore and legend i mean this is not the first time we've ever seen sinbad as a film even he's had some film appearances before this oh absolutely i mean sinbad goes way back but you're right i mean there are some things in this movie that are just fresh and and brand new that harry's house and brought to the table that you just don't see or didn't see anywhere else right yeah no one had made the kind of movie that he made with monsters and in fact i hadn't even realized until i was reading um, one of his books about this, that this is actually the first film of his that has more than one monster in it. Previously, we'd had The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, we'd have had the Emir, we had the, the giant octopus, that kind of stuff. But there wasn't the Cyclops and the dragon. There wasn't more than one model. And aside from King Kong, even Mighty Joe Young only has one creature in it. It's got the ape. That's true. King Kong... Yeah which, if you'll remember, is, is even higher on my list than this, has creatures interacting, as does the Lost World. But for Harryhausen, this was a breakthrough, both in terms of the number of creatures he was doing and the type of film he was doing. Well, and you said interacting there, and I think that's one of the things that struck me about this movie when I just watched it this morning, was the interaction between Sinbad and the skeleton, which has become an iconic thing now in a lot of Harryhausen's films, as you see you know, the humans fighting the stop-motion skeletons, swordplay going on, and it's it's fantastic. You see you know, the, the dragon on the screen at the same time as Sinbad, and I mean, the interaction seemed pretty seamless to me. It's amazing. It looks really good today. Uh, but today, people tend to take it for granted because we have CGI and we have the ability to do almost anything. And you have to remember that this film is essentially one guy, Harry Hausen, manipulating these things by himself with maybe a lighting technician or someone else like that. But he's essentially doing all this stuff himself in ways that, yes, Willis O'Brien was doing it. And sadly, Willis O'Brien didn't have a great career. He did King Kong, one of the best movies of all time. But then was he was like a prophet before his time he couldn't get people to listen to him so between him and harry house there's pretty much nothing and then it's just ray this one guy in the studio making this magic happen knowing the techniques that he's learned from from willis o'brien and developed on his own and i like to say that people that don't kind of appreciate this 
when you go in and you see a Star Wars movie or The Hobbit, and you get to the credits, and there's a credit special effects role, and the role goes on and on and on, and there's hundreds of people on that special effects role. And it, sometimes it can take five minutes to see all the people that worked on the movie. When you go to a Ray Harryhausen movie, when you go to Seventh Voyage, or you go to Jason and the Argonauts, or Valley of Guanji, or any of these, there's one name that replaces all of those people. This was a guy working alone, performing screen magic. It's pretty impressive. It's pretty amazing. I mean, even a movie like, you know, the Tim Burton stuff, the Frank and Weenie, Nightmare Before Christmas, I mean, that's all hand manipulated, but there's a huge crew of people working on these things. Harry Townsend was one guy. Right. No detriment to the guys doing the Frank and Weenie Nightmare. No, not at all. They're great stuff, and there is a lead technician that does most of that stuff. But up until uh, the last film he did, The Clash of the Titans, Harry Hausen didn't have people helping him. Yes, he had people that helped with getting the lighting right sometimes, and he had people that helped with building the, the armatures for the puppets. And so his dad actually built the armatures for a lot of his puppets. So he had other people behind the scenes, but in terms of putting the stuff on the film, it was him. Yeah, the real sweat came from Harryhausen. The, the, the blood, sweat, and tears was Harryhausen all the way. You can right. definitely tell. There's a consistency to the quality as well throughout this film and then his other films. And I want to mention Clash of the Titans later because that's the one that I saw on the big screen. Mm-hmm. And that one, that one had a profound effect on me, but in a slightly different way. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. Sure. Uh, we have danced around this movie and what's in the movie. Just real briefly, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad picks up Right at the end of, I guess, of the sixth voyage, you know, Sinbad and his crew are tired. They're lost. They're trying to get home. They find this island. And like within the first 10, 15 minutes, there's a Cyclops on the screen. You don't have to wait for the magic in this thing. Right. And that's one of the wonderful things about Harry House's movies is that the, in a lot of other films, the monsters are always, they're in the shadows for a lot of the film and you don't get to see them a lot. In a Harry Hausen film, the monster is going to come right out the center stage. And in this case, in glorious full color for the first time. And boom, there it is. You can see it. And it's like, whoa, I've never seen this before. And we should point out that the sixth voyage of Sinbad doesn't exist. It's not. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That there are no action, even though this is called the seventh voyage, there are no voyages one to three, at least not on film. (laughs) Right. So we're picking right up in the middle of adventure. They get to the island. They see the Cyclops. They discover the magician and the magic lamp. Mm -hmm. And. Then they're away from the island. So right. I'll, I'll let you continue talking about anything else you want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty short. You know, it, it's a short lead up to what we're going to see here. It's immediately a magical film because of the Cyclops, which looks amazing. And I mean, we pick up our, our magician who right from the, the get-go we know is a bad guy. So let's talk about the cast real quick because we're, we're kind of talking about the characters here. Sinpad is played by Kerwin Matthews, who I thought did a, a passable job. I mean, he's not the star of the movie. I mean, Harryhausen's work is, but... Oh, I think Corwin Matthews is terrific, and I think that's the fact that he is so good is one of the reasons he ended up in uh, a number of other fantasy films, Mm -hmm. um, including Jack the Giant Killer and The Three Worlds of Gulliver, again, with Harryhausen, and a number of films like that. You maybe can appreciate it in this, and if you see Three Worlds of Gulliver, which is Harryhausen's next film, which he starred in again... Matthews had a real talent for making you believe that he's in the in the scene with these monsters, which are not actually in the scene, of course. Sure. 
so he's totally convincing that he's looking at a six inch high princess and then, you know, the 18 foot high Cyclops. He totally sells it. So maybe not, you know, a great movie star in terms of, you know, he's, we're not going to talk about him in terms with Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart or something like that. But in terms of this kind of stuff, he's great. Oh, yeah. He definitely has that kind of swashbuckler kind of cut to him. Mm-hmm. Totally believe yeah, it. He spent a lot of time on a boat and can command men. He's got the charisma. He's good with a sword. You know, I totally bought that. Right. He looks at reasonably athletic. You know, he's not Steve Reeves' muscle man by any means, but it's actually more believable that he's not a muscle man. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he looks like a guy that's been on a boat. <laughs> with a crew that trusts him and he trusts right. his crew, which becomes an issue later in this movie when he doesn't have that same crew with him, when he has to go back out to the Island. Right. Now we also have his princess, uh, Parisa. Did I say that correctly? Parisa. Parisa yeah. played by Catherine Grant, you know, and I don't want to harsh on the movie too much, um, <laughs> but really we watched this movie for the monsters. The rest of the story is nice. If you're looking at just the story of the people, I don't know if I bought their charisma, very, you know, their connection, very well. Uh, mm-hmm. Later in the movie, we learn that it's kind of sort of a political thing as well, which isn't delved into too much. But I don't know. What what was your thought on on their relationship? We have to realize that, yeah. again that this is um, this is the end of the 1950s. Yeah, that these are white people playing Arabs. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> to start with, so there you you kind of lose a level of of verisimilitude there, and also that it's. It's a 1950s kids film. Well, yeah. it's a kid, a film for kids and adults, but we're going to have more of a cliche romantic relationship rather than something that seems more real and believable. Right. And, and I bring that up because if somebody hasn't seen this movie and they are going to it for the first time, I, I just want to be aware that it is a family friendly film. It's dealing with all these things kind of under the surface, you know, there's the political thing about the two countries coming together. There's this romantic relationship, but we don't get too deep into it because we don't need to. Right. So, you know, you've got the, the, the lovers here, the relationship, I guess they're engaged. And the other guy that I want to mention, Torrin Thatcher as Sakura, the magician, he stole every scene he was in. I love him. He's a great (laughs) villain. He is. He just looks great. Torrent Thatcher was a, a fabulous artist, and of course I'm going to completely forget what else he's he's uh, been in, but he's a guy that had a lot of classical training, a very powerful vo- voice, and a very powerful carriage, and he's just terrific as the evil magician. Oh, you know, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah, you totally buy it, and, and sometimes you think, as you're watching it, can't these other people see that what a schmuck he is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's that moment when the when the uh, the two kings or or whatever the equivalent of, of royalty is over there are, are asking him to predict the future, and you can just see on his face plainly, I'm going to play these guys and get what I want. Right. You can just tell. But that goes to the everything's very surface level here in terms of the complexity of the relationships and the performances, because really it is a family friendly movie. We don't want to go too far over everybody's heads. Right. But man, he's so good. He's yeah. So there's good. not. A- there's not a lot of subtext to this movie. No. Everyone is pretty much what they seem to be. And the hero is very heroic and the villain is very villainous. And there's not a lot of gray area in the film. And exactly. the same is, same is with the, the romantic relationship and that kind of stuff. That said, and, and you mentioned a second ago, these are white people playing, you know, Arab. I was impressed. And, and I don't know, maybe I'm looking at it as a, a guy watching this movie in 2013, but I was impressed that they didn't completely anglicize everything. Instead of saying, thank God this or praise God that, it was always Allah. Right. And I thought that was respectful. 
Uh, you know, and I agree. White people playing people of other colors are ju- it's just something you have to accept in the movies uh, from the time, from, you know, like the start of the movies up until at least the 70s. Well, even now with Johnny Depp playing Tonto here soon. Right. So, I mean, I, it, it I, happens. That just flashed into my head, too. It was like, what are they thinking? I love Johnny <laughs> Depp. But yeah. ironically, Tonto was played by Jay Silverheels, which is one of, one of the only actual American Indian actors. <laughs> right. So suddenly the, the only part that was never played by a white guy is now being played by a white guy. What you going to do? It's Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's Hollywood. But yeah, they did treat the material with a lot of respect, and in some sense more respect than some of the previous Hollywood Arabian Nights epics had. One of the, the reasons they had trouble starting this film was Son of Sinbad, which I don't know if you've ever seen. I think it's got... I'm going to say it's Vincent Price is in it, and John Hall, maybe. Oh, wow. But that, that's just off the top of my head. It's kind of a dopey Arabian Nights fantasy. I think it was produced by Howard Hughes, so it had a, a fairly good pedigree, and it completely bombed at the box office. Mm. It was kind of... Um, in tone, it was more like... I, I don't want to say it exactly an Abbott and Costello picture, but it was kind of that picture. And this one, on the other hand, it's being played very straight and very respectful and clearly has a deep love of the mythology, even despite the fact that these are all Anglos playing non-Anglos, has a deep love of the mythology and the background that goes with these stories. Mm-hmm. So when the sailors show up on this island, the magician needs help because the Cyclops is rampaging. They get on Sinbad's boat and go away. They go back to Baghdad. Well, now the magician wants to go back. Because they've lost his magic lamp. Exactly. Now, that's the other thing I wanted to mention is that there is a magic lamp. I had forgotten there was a genie in this thing. There is. He's yeah. a very strange little genie. <laughs> yes. You know, I sat down to watch it. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah. There's a magic lamp. And then the princess goes, oh, yeah, I remember that now. But I had totally, like, that was the last thing on my mind when I came back to this. And you had mentioned, you know, maybe doing this for Monster Kid Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, the genie was played by Richard Iyer. Did I pronounce that right? I think so. I, you know, I've never heard it, so I, I can't say for sure. The other thing I remember f- him from is The Invisible Boy. He's the title character in The Invisible Boy. Yeah, he did a lot of, of that type of storytelling, a lot of the family-friendly type stuff. He did some Lassie, you know, things like that. So uh, he, seemed, he has a very distinctive voice. Yeah, he does. And clearly he's a pretty good kid actor. Yeah, he is. He does. He's probably the whitest of them all. Oh, shucks, Sinbad. You know, I just waited for that. Oh, shucks, you know, kind of moment. I brought it over for you. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Right. His accent does slip a little bit. Everybody else has a very proper way of speaking. No contractions, you know, no no sentences that end with a preposition. Everything's very proper, except for the kid. Right. (laughs) Which was the kid. He's a kid genie, so it's it's kind of an interesting. I don't know. It's it's really interesting. If the last genie that I can remember in in a movie before this, well, there probably have been some that are like beautiful women, kind of a dream of genie things. But the last proper metal genie that pops into my head is from Thief of Baghdad, uh, the 1940s version. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Hmm. It's a a marvelous fantasy film by okay. the Cordes, uh, by Alexander Corda, and has great special effects. And the genie in that is this huge imposing nearly terrifying character who interacts with sabu who's the uh, the thief of the the thief of baghdad and to go from this huge imposing uh character into this one where he's he's literally a little boy is kind of an interesting contrast and an interesting change mm-hmm. 
And I'm not sure exactly why they did that, why the genie is a little boy, although it makes an excellent story point. You know, it's like he's like a surrogate son in some ways to right. the to Sinbad and Parissa. And there is there is a story point that goes along with that. But maybe part of it is also that you don't want to have a really huge genie competing with the giant cyclops and the dragon and the rock and and things like that. So the, a smaller genie who's nevertheless powerful is maybe a better fit for this kind of movie than a, a huge, uh, you know, uh, Robin Williams, I am the genie of the lamp. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the amazing cosmic power, tiny little house or whatever right. it is he said in the film. Right. Well, and that's something actually I wanted to ask you about. I, I didn't remember the genie to begin with, but when I saw it and then I come across the, the moment in the film where we learn that he's being kept against his will and he really wants his freedom. I couldn't help think of Disney's Aladdin at this point. Right. You yeah. Know, and, and how much of that was an influence intentionally or otherwise. Given how influential this film is in Hollywood, I can't imagine that the people working on Aladdin were not influenced by that idea, even though that's the genie chained to the lamp or the bottle or something is a mythological idea. You're right. The way genie is chained in servitude is very similar to the way the Robin Williams genie is chained in Aladdin. Which just blew my mind. And again, Right. Well, it's amazing. I mean, I don't know if you were going to mention this later in the film, but there are a lot of things in this film that are really obviously influential to other other Hollywood films. You mentioned the skeleton scene right off the top. But there's also the the two heroes swinging across the endless chasm on a rope that Mm -hmm. is very clearly directly saluted in star wars in the scene in the death star with with uh, luke and leia oh yeah you know lucas saw this film right absolutely and all those guys did you know if you, if you see interviews with dennis muir and the other people at ilm all of them say harry housen's the guy oh yeah sure phil Tippett and all of them yeah definitely right. absolutely yeah so you saw that uh you know to, to mention the this skeleton sword fight thing you know army of darkness touched on that a little bit yeah you know and yeah well yeah that's true and even similar technique in terms of filming or, or presenting that on film you know was almost a direct uh i don't know homage or or, or i don't want to say copy but it's, it's pretty obvious they had spent some time watching these movies to get that look right for army of darkness as well Right, absolutely. You know, Sam Raimi loves this kind of loves this film, loves Harryhausen work, and it's clearly Army of Darkness is a tribute to this and to the uh, Jason and the Argonauts, oh. which has even more skeletons. Yeah, kids like the skeletons. Put more of them in. Yeah, <laughs> which you know, now I want to see Jason and the Argonauts again because I haven't seen that in years either. So, oh, it's a great film. Oh, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually this magician manipulates events and manipulates the two rulers and finds a way to get Sinbad to take him back to his little island by shrinking the princess in what I thought was a really neat special effects sequence. It's very subtle. I mean, it's not fancy. We mm-hmm. just see her shrink. Yeah, in, in kind of a a strange way in terms of what you expect because – well, for whatever reason they did it this way, it's actually a much more effective shrinking sequence than you expect for the time, where you simply see her arm lying on her bed, where she's suddenly surrounded by this gaseous mist that the, the magician has set up, and you see the arm gradually shrinking in relationship to the pillow that she's lying on top of. Right. And you don't actually see the outcome. You just see the start of it, 
and then you see the reactions and it's actually a scene or two later where you discover that yes indeed she has been shrunken down right. to the size of you know a, a barbie doll actually smaller than a barbie i mean and you don't know what's happening like you said it's very you know you don't know what's going on is she withering away is she you know who knows what's happening here and then you get the reaction right. we've already seen a woman turn into a a, a, a half serpent half woman right thing. so there's lots of possibilities that that could be going on there mm-hmm. but in fact she's just been shrunk down to doll size and then the magician reveals well i can fix her if you take me back to my castle on that island Right. <laughs> Thank you. As a matter of fact, if you give me what I always wanted and been asking for this whole movie, I can solve this problem. Yep. No trouble. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. <laughs> you know, nobody, dude. He's an evil magician. You don't trust, but okay. So, well, I love the scene where they're mad at him because the the caliphs, the two uh, factions, are mad at the magician because. They've said, can you tell the future? What does the future hold? And he, he gives them a bad prophecy. He tells them, your two countries are going to be at war. He's in this supposed trance. And they flip out and they're like, they decide they're going to kill the messenger. Right. <laughs> and so Sinbad like knocks him to the floor and the caliph goes, well done, Sinbad. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're just beating up. A, you literally told this guy to tell you what what he saw no matter how bad it was he tells you a bad thing and then you hit him how dare <laughs> that's not you? great <laughs> and and tell him you're going to kill him or put his eyes out or something if he's still in the city the time the next sun rolls around right so there's this great scene where the magician is actually leaving the city and they have to actually go and chase him down and try to bring him back where he's like oh no no i'm not coming back they're going to kill me if i come back to undo what we all know, but they haven't figured out right. that he has done, that he's <laughs> shrunk the princess. So they go looking for help to the guy that's caused the problem. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not coming back. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and I love that moment. Torrin Thatcher's just wonderful. Oh, he's great. Well, yeah. and you know, and, and like you said, as an audience member, we're yelling at the screen, guys, y- you know, <laughs> you know what's happening here, right? Come on. It's kind of strange that you bring this magician into your court and suddenly this weird thing happens that he predicted yeah who who is responsible not the magician that just showed up but something you know right yeah so they kind of have a jekyll and hyde with him it's like they're impressed with him then they hate him then they're impressed with him again enough to be back in their good graces like oh we hated you last night we're gonna kill you Please come back and save us. <laughs> right, exactly. So Sinbad gets him and you know his right hand man and a crew of prisoners because he can't put a crew together that wants to go to the scary Cyclops Island. And these prisoners are all sentenced to death anyway. They've got nothing to lose. And he gets on a boat with the obviously bad magician, at least obviously bad to us, and the prisoners who clearly have other intentions and goes out to where nobody can help them if there's a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, you know, you got to go to the island of the Cyclops. You got to go to the island of the Cyclops. You got to go, and there is an attempted mutiny along the way, and right, yeah, and a and a wonderful scene right out of uh, the Seven Voyages, and and the Odyssey, which is the Seven Voyages, right. the little Sinbad voyages were inspired by the Odyssey, in which they're nearly driven mad by the sirens, which they call screaming demons or something like that. Yeah, and you know, again, this is an example. I I don't know. Did the magician make that happen, or did he just know it was going to happen? It's it's pretty impressive though. That whole sequence, the way the sound was done, and everybody's clutching their heads. It's it's a really good 
moment. And I really was worried at this point, you know, who's going to make it to the island? You know, Simbad's bringing this crew with him that, you know, probably going to die along the way. Who's going to help him? Right. I was reading about it, and they'd at one point thought they were going to have mermaid-like creatures as the sirens, but because of budgetary reasons and whatever, they didn't do it. But the way they ended up shooting it and using sound effects is very, very effective. Oh, yeah. For young people, it was probably kind of scary mm-hmm. because, you, you know, as a kid, you don't think, oh, my God, they can't kill Sinbad now. <laughs> right. You think Sinbad's in real danger here. He's locked in a cell and the ship is heading toward the rocks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but notice a little bit of what might have gone into the final scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark in this as well, the way all the bad guys are kind of clutching their heads and you know being affected by these things that you're hearing more of seeing and just, just a touch maybe. I don't know if I'm right. reaching. Yeah, no, you know, I, I don't think you probably are because there is some similarity between that sequence with the, the screaming demons on the island and the, uh, the end sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark after they've opened the Ark and, and all hell breaks loose. Right. Oh, yeah. When we do finally get to the island, we're back into monster mode. We're going to see the Cyclops. We're going to see the rock. Yep, the rock. Now, the I knew, two-headed rock. Yes, yes. Now, I knew what a rock was because of my D&D background. I played D&D you know, growing up for years. The rock is a, a fictional fantasy beast as well. I mean, this isn't something Harryhausen made up. This was a mythological creature as well, right? Yeah, yeah. The rock is from the original Sinbad stories, right. Some kind, sometimes called the Hruk, R-H-U-K. Mm-hmm. rather than ROC. Yeah, so he created his beast from the mythology. And they talked at one point about having more than one rock in the scene, but I think for reasons of time and practicality, they decided to make it just one bird. But right. because it's a Harryhausen film, it doesn't have to be just a bird. It can be a two-headed bird. Right. I just think that's way cool. <laughs> sure. No. And, you know, even though it's been in the mythology and the, in the original Sinbad stories or whatever, it's got that Harryhausen touch, which all the monsters in this do. I mean, the, the Cyclops has, you know, a horn and, you know, he looks like a giant. He's kind of a cross between a human and a Cyclops and a yeah. centaur. Yeah, centaur. That's the word I was looking for. So Or a satyr, actually. A satyr. That's more appropriate, right. And it just, there's this touch, there's this thing that makes everything feel Harryhausian. <laughs> It's it's hard to describe, but I always think that you can see Harryhausen's personality or maybe his soul in these creatures. It's like in imbuing them with life, you actually kind of get to see a reflection of who he is and, and his personality and interests. I think he probably refers to that as giving them character in the fact that they're not just monsters. They have some kind of a personality to them as yeah. well. So... Uh, you can see that in – it's very obvious in the Cyclops, but you can also see it in the rock as well. I can definitely see that, and I, I can imagine that Harryhausen spent a lot of time in front of a mirror watching – you know, making these movements himself and seeing mm-hmm. how he would make those movements so that he could transfer the way he moves into something like the Cyclops, especially with something like the Cyclops or something that's obviously humanoid. I could see how he could kind of work his own body English into – you know, the, the monsters he's creating, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think mirrors are definitely part of the process. I, sure. What, a thing I didn't mention was when I was in my teenage years and, and younger, I actually thought I might be an animator. That was one of my goals. And one of the reasons it probably didn't happen was it was an expensive hobby to try to, to do at the time. You had crappy cameras or you had expensive cameras. And 
all the things that went into it, the things that Ray overcame to get where he was and learn that technique were really pretty sizable. This is not a day where you had digital cameras or digital stop motion cameras or anything that you could practice with. You know, I have more capabilities in the little pocket camera that I got upstairs than you could easily muster as even an adult in the 1970s Mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, in terms of the technology that you could use to, to make a film. Back then, it was all film. You had to have film stock. You had to have cameras. If you were using 8mm, you had to flip over the film in between. You had to have, you know, essentially kind of some kind of a dark room to work in just to change the film and all that kind of stuff. And it, it is a very painstaking process, and it does involve a lot of observation. One of the things that I realized as I moved from my ambition to do animation into my ambition to do comics was just how much about the way animals move and the way people move and how much anatomy and stuff goes into these creatures that we just take for granted on the screen. And we take them for granted with Harryhausen's films because they're all so well done. If you see someone else doing the animation who's not maybe as good, uh, say the guys that did Jack the Giant Killer, who are very good, but not quite at the same level, you start to see little differences between the way the, the creatures move and the way people move, or the way the anatomy is in the creatures, and the way anatomy is in things you know. And in a Harry Housen movie, you never think about that at all. Right. It's so transparent. It, it works so well that you don't start to break it down and be like, well, that's obviously clay here. And this is obviously, you know, you don't have to, right. He doesn't give you the opportunity to, because it's so good. And, you know, we were talking about the rock earlier, the stuff that impresses me the most about what Harryhausen does and, and the best stop motion artists out there are the stop motion creatures that are flying, that do not have to deal with gravity. Uh, so so because you're now dealing with something that is completely freestanding, you know, with the Cyclops and I'm not belittling it at all, but the Cyclops is at least one foot on the ground. There's always a little bit of support there, but you get that thing up in the air. You're dealing with, you know, an extra dimension that just, it blows my mind every time I see it. Yeah. And as a young animator without the internet for resources and that kind of stuff, that was one of the things I just could not figure out. (laughs) Right. Well, and even now when you watch the baby rocks being born and pieces of the eggshell are falling off the stop motion cracking egg, they fall as if there is gravity affecting them. There are no wires that you can see. Right. How did he do that? You know, (laughs) I I think the answer is he actually did do it with wires, but he did it in such a way that you couldn't detect what he was doing. Exactly. And, you, and that's just amazing. And you were talking about the anatomy. That's the other thing I wanted to mention. When we see the dragon later that's you know buried underground near the magician's lair, it's, mm-hmm. it's breathing. So it's not yep. just a matter of taking a piece of clay and pushing it around this way or that way or whatever. There's something being done here. And I don't know if it was done in bladders. I don't know how it was done. I'd have to do some research or, or whatever. But you can see its chest and belly expand and, and contract as it's drawing breath and exhaling. That's right. mighty impressive. It is. It is. And that's a, a technique he actually learned from Willis O'Brien, too, mm-hmm. who had done it in The Lost World. And, yeah, it does involve a bladder, something like a blood pressure cuff in the thing, which then he would he animated that as well as everything else that was going on. It wasn't something you could actually just, you know, the way we breathe. He didn't do that in natural time. He did that all in animation, too. 
Right. And it was done. It wasn't like a consistent thing because if it had become just a, like a regular rhythm, you'd kind of detect it and it, it would kind of start to stand out. But as the dragon is moving around, you know, as it's lifting a leg, it, it kind of takes a deeper breath and excel. It's it's just very lifelike. Right. And the just the thought process that this man had wor- here working alone to do that all by himself and to think, I need to have this creature breathe this way at this point so it will look natural in its breathing and not just as you say not just a a kind of a regular metronome pump going off it's it's just astonishing the attention to detail i think i've never met ray um you know i i'm envious of vincent and mary rotolo who have (laughs) oh yeah man when they did that episode of the b movie cast and revealed they had met ray harryhausen my jaw dropped yeah i'm like like, what wow I'd give probably one of my fingers to do that. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they knew it at the time, but they were living for every one of us in that moment. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And in some ways, you know, we see people, sometimes they're called geniuses. Yeah. Part part of me thinks that, you know, if you were to run Ray through the psychology, maybe he's, maybe he's just a genius, but maybe he has some of that high functioning focus that, normal people just do not have yeah no I, I i tell you man i mean just producing a podcast you know after a couple of hours <laughs> i need to walk away so i mean to be able to sit in a lab or a studio somewhere for hours on that hour, after, hour well, after hour and even before the production begins because he's got to figure out how to make that work with the blood pressure cuff and the design right. of it and and working with the armatures and building up the monster itself and right and how much he has to inflate it each time to to think so that it will look like it's breathing and not like it's gasping or, or whatever else is happening. Just the, yeah, the amount of forethought and planning, just the, the attention to detail and the patience that this guy shows in every one of these films that are, you don't see any of that on, on the screen in some sense, because he does it so well, it looks real or as near to real as film can make it. And there is a lot of attention to detail to other elements of the film as well. I mean, we throughout the rest of the story, it's basically Sinbad and the princess trying to get the magician to reverse the process. We're fighting monsters along the way, and, you know, the genie, you know, gets free as well in, in all of this, and ultimately the good guys win. But when we're up in the magician's study, laboratory... His lair. His lair. I mean, there is a lot of detail just as a production design and the props. Although there was one that kind of threw me off a little bit. There, there's a fight between Sinbad and the skeleton. And mm-hmm. Sinbad disarms the skeleton. Not literally, but I mean, just. <laughs> <laughs> but he knocks the sword away. So the skeleton throws a shield at him instead. Sinbad mm-hmm. ducks and the shield hits the wall behind him. Mounted on the magician's wall is a stuffed alligator or crocodile. Where did that come from? <laughs> On this little come, Arabian island? <laughs> could have come from the Nihilist, but he's a magician, right? So it's a That's, eye of nude, wing of bat, foot of crocodile? Yeah, oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Yeah, I just, I caught it. You, you know, know, I never really noticed that. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> my eye picked I've it seen up. this. You know, it's funny. You can watch a film like this, and because of the dedication that people put in into it, you really can almost see something new every time that you watch it. Mm-hmm. For instance, the last time, one of the last two times I watched it, I noticed that second Cyclops, there are two Cyclopses on the island, right. or Cyclopes on the island. There's the one they meet initially that then puts them in a cage and tries to roast them, and they have this uh, epic battle with it. And and after that one is killed, there's a, 
another one that comes out and fights the dragon later in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, wonderful another one of these wonderful battles that if you were of the same age I am, you could get it on eight millimeter film from the back of the famous Monsters of Film and catalog. But nice. that second Cyclops actually has two horns on his head. The first one only has one. And I didn't notice this for literally for decades watching this film. And only the last one of the last times I saw it did I go, wait a minute. That's not the same Cyclops as the previous one. That's actually literally a different one. Because I, I always just thought that they were the same and all Cyclopses look, Cyclopes looked alike. But they don't. And there's that, that little attention to detail that if you're paying attention, it's like, wait a minute. There really are, you know, they implied there were more than one Cyclops on the island. But there you actually get to see another one that's not just the same model redressed. It's a different model. I hadn't noticed that even just this morning. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it. Right. <laughs> well, like I said, I've got gone 30, 40 years and never noticed it until just this, within the last year. I was like, wow, I never noticed that before. All right. Big thanks to Steve for taking some time to talk to us about this movie, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. I am so glad he picked it. You know, I've mentioned this a couple of times. I've put the call out to pick classic monster movies to talk about here on the show. And I kind of assumed that people would go to the universals. I kind of assumed people would go to monster horror movies. I've had so many people wanting to do these sci-fi movies. I think it's great. And big thanks to everybody who has decided to pick those types of movies for us to cover here on the show because I think it really shows and demonstrates the breadth and depth of what it really means to be a fan of these movies. I mean, it's not just, you know, a guy who sits around watching the universal movies over and over again. These monster kids, us monster kids enjoy the sci-fi movies as well. And I'm going to talk about a sci-fi movie that I just recently watched on the next episode of monster kid radio. That'll be coming out in two days. So stay tuned for episode 10 for the rest of the conversation with Stephen D. Sullivan. We're not going to make it this week, but if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, you will be hard-pressed to find something better to do with your time than to go to the Joy Cinema in Tigard. They're over at 11959 Southwest Pacific Highway in Tigard. You can find their website at thejoycinema.com. Their Weird Wednesday series is continuing on July 26th. You're going to see the movie The Acid Eaters from 19. 19- 68. Now, this is less a horror movie and more just something really weird. I don't know anything about it, actually, and I asked Jeff at the Joy Cinema about it, and he told me it's just a really weird, trippy movie and probably one that'll be a lot of fun to watch with a group of people. According to the Internet Movie Database, it is about a group of office workers going every Friday afternoon to the White Pyramid, which is a 50-foot tower of LSD. So this seems less monster and more just out there, but the movie is free. Weird Wednesday is free. It's for 21 and over only. All you got to pay for is whatever concessions you want to have while you watch this movie. And he's got the traditional, the popcorn, the candy, the soda. He's also got beer, pizza, and nachos. So again, head over to thejoycinema.com to see what's coming up next. And as I mentioned last week, July 3rd, EGA. That is a Monster Kid Radio crash event. Monster Kid Radio crashes EGA on July 3rd at the Joy Cinema. I can't wait. That's going to be a lot of fun to see on the big screen with a group of like-minded folks Hear some awesome music. Watch some awesome performance. It's a fun movie. If you've not seen Ega, then I highly recommend you guys check that out. And then on July 10th is Guess What Happened to Count Dracula. I don't know what's coming up next. I hope to find out soon, and I'll let you guys know. 
Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations 3.0 Unported License. That does not apply, however, to the song Hearse Surfin from the album She Left Her Brain at the Drive-In, which appears courtesy of the band The Phantomatics. See you in a couple of days.